Hi, everyone, and welcome back to our third week of Deconstructing Deconstruction, which, as you can tell from the last few weeks, you cannot do in three weeks. <laughs> you can't even cover the topic, and so if there are many holes, um, that is very fair. There are many holes to what we are discussing that I would encourage you to, to dive into. Uh, the first week, if you guys weren't here, was about what is deconstruction? How did we get here? And we kind of covered the premise that all of culture right now, um, with the accelerant of COVID, but also with the accelerant of the internet, social media, um, and mass media, is at a place of kind of corporate doubt. We're all struggling with what is anchoring us right now. And with re religious um, deconstruction is understanding that many of us are on a faith journey, that from our faith family of origin, we've been handed a constructed um, theology that it, whether it's a crisis um, attending university, whether it is what's happening in mainstream culture, many of us find ourselves in a place where we have questions like, wait, sorry, what do we believe? Why do I believe it? What is church? What is this? This? What is sexuality? Wait, um, and and that's where we are as a as a culture. Last week we talked about well, what is cheap deconstruction? Not that there is good or bad, but there definitely is a process that is way quicker and maybe more efficient, but not necessarily um, well rounded. And that included, you know swapping your uh, theology for a prepackaged set of ideology, kind of doing a quick swing, and that that is not deconstruction, that's actually kind of like intellectual consumerism, where you've bought something that someone already prepackaged, and really, at the end of the day, if that's what you do, you will end up at the same crisis, eventually, right? Whether it's a crisis of faith, or it's a crisis, uh, you know, more of an existential crisis, that when you buy something that's prepackaged, um, just like it is with our food, it's missing a lot of the nutrients. And part of the way that you gain those nutrients is by working it out, right? Working out what you think, what you believe, and why, even if it goes against the grain of culture. And that was the second you know, point with uh, cheap deconstruction is that oftentimes we want to just create a theology that we are completely and totally at peace with. And that looks like writing things out and we can quickly be at a place where what we've written out is the need for a savior altogether. Um, and that if that's you, it's okay. This is an opportunity to either slow down the path that you're on or back it up or just stay in a place where you're like, okay, maybe I haven't arrived. And I don't know if this is terrifying or reassuring, but you know, for me, I've loved Jesus with my whole heart since I was 17. So we're going on a few decades now. Um, and there are still things that I don't, I don't understand, I can't wrap my head around, and I find solace in the fact that at times when I find God offensive or I don't understand that it encourages me that I have not just created one in my own image who completely agrees with everything that I say. Um, but tonight we're gonna be diving into what is reconstruction or how do I reconstruct or what happens after deconstruction. And, um, and we'll be going from there, okay? So we, as I kind of mentioned, with COVID, we're in kind of an accelerated time as the church where the church itself is being deconstructed. And I believe that that's probably why this word, deconstruction, which is normally something that <laughs> is stuck in the halls of a philosophy department or a sociology department, is now part of mainstream language, like gaslighting is something that we've learned with COVID, um, is that COVID, because of the pressure and the absolute shutdown 
breakdown that the church experienced from gathering um, physically for such a long period of time, it acted as an accelerant to the church, as in the people, deconstructing what it is to meet, what it is to be the church, what it is to, um, yeah, like really the question is, what is this? <laughs> Why are we doing it? Do I even agree with it? Um, and that has been destabilizing for everyone, whether you're a parishioner, a pastor, um, or another word, you identify as some other person in the wheel, the ear, the eye, the foot. Um, it has been a destabilizing experience. Um, and yet, what I think, and again, this is my own kind of faith journey, is that I think we've been invited by the Holy Spirit to actually ask those questions, right? To, I don't think it's um, necessarily being cynical or critical to have had the world completely stop and to say, okay, wait a second, here's a great opportunity to ask, what is this and why do we do it? What I would say with reconstruction and deconstruction is that um, the purpose is not to destroy, okay? So deconstruction, if it ends in destruction, then you haven't deconstructed because the, the last chapter of deconstruction is reconstructing. Okay, and I think right now the tension that we feel at, in the church is let's destroy this thing. Let's destroy it and, you know, start new. And it's like, I, that's not the point. And this may be a little bit of a stretch, but I, the last time that we have really read about the church being destroyed, it was Christ himself saying it, right? I will destroy this and I will rebuild it but the key thing being that it's being rebuilt. And so that's actually where we're gonna jump in today is John 2, verses 13 to 22. And if you're reading along, um, we'll start at 13, okay? The Passover of the, of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, well, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, the church. Then therefore he was raised from the dead. His, sorry, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay, so again, if you've grown up in Sunday school, this was one of the very exciting um, uh, flannel graphs <laughs> at Sunday school when the teacher is destroying the tables and making the pigeons fly and you know it's one of the most aggressive kind of experiences that we have of seeing Jesus be frustrated um, and again going back to week one um, we are in a culture that really tries to minimize emotions that are negative. You know, it's like, as long as it feels good and it's positive, even from a psychology perspective, the idea of positive psychology, um, you know, every strength has an Achilles heel and the Achilles heel of our culture right now is it tells us that if you are experiencing a negative emotion, you clearly lack some version of self-control. You've lost it. There's something wrong with you. Um, and I think it's interesting for us to see Jesus angry 
frustrated and ticked off and see him throwing things. <laughs> like, really, wasn't he more evolved than that? But the reality is, just like with anger, just like with doubt, if you think about it as a pyramid or as an iceberg, that is a symptom feeling that typically is a signpost that something needs to be listened to. So why would Jesus, perfect God and, and human in flesh, why would he be behaving this way if it wasn't because there was a sign that something else was happening, right? So what's interesting is that the historical context of this and again, you could do a deep dive into this, and I would encourage you, if you want to, to do that deep dive. But the historical context of this is that temple worship, there wasn't, you know, nowadays, um, well, maybe not very much anymore, but there's churches everywhere. Like, we're meeting in the evening. There's churches that meet in the morning. There's churches on the corner from your house. You know, you could, as someone who lives in this city, pick a church that you want to go to, a place where you want to worship that worships in your style, you know, it could go on and on and on. But then there was one temple, and it was, it was the one um, right beside the Kindred Valley. That was the temple. And so if you wanted to worship and you were part of the, um, you know, the Jews were spread out all over. When it came for Passover, when it came for you to do your temple tax and to worship, you had to go to that location. Well, when you need to bring a spotless lamb or whatever part of your um, cattle that you want to bring for sacrifice, if you're taking a long journey, three weeks, three months, whatever it is, because there's no public transit and no Birkenstocks if you are walking, um, you need an animal that is as spotless or as pure as it, as it gets, and that travel wouldn't do well. And so what the historian supposes is that the original intent of the merchants selling animals was actually to help with the accessibility of worship for those that were traveling far. So they could still make a sacrifice by buying the animal, but have a perfect or, you know, close to perfect animal. And what's interesting about them having pigeons and other livestock is that pigeons were for the poor, right? So if you couldn't afford a lamb, at least you probably could afford a pigeon. So the original intent of creating accessible worship for those that were far, for those that were poor, for those that were traveling, um, eventually with our, I would say, our human nature <laughs> and our bend towards, I don't know, power, commerce, uh, all of that, is that eventually it actually became... Um, uh, inflated. The prices were inflated. So this pigeon was no longer um, a pigeon that you could afford. And the high priest and the family of the high priest, um, historians note that they were actually, if someone did travel with a pigeon that they could afford, they, there was a new standard that was being set. That pigeon's not good enough. You actually need to buy one of these ones. And it was all part of a um, commercial kind of enterprise that included the high priest, the the family, the, um, the whole temple was part of it. It was kind of, they were all colluding together for the commercialization of worship, which sounds really similar, doesn't it? <laughs> and so that when Jesus is talking about, you know, that this is uh, upsetting, a lot of people will apply it to like, you can't sell t-shirts in the foyer because if Jesus was here, he'd throw that table over. And it's like, I don't think it's about selling merch with your church name on it, although that is a whole other <laughs> thing that we could dive into. Like, why does it have to be that your church is the best church? I don't get it. Um, 
but I, so there's a loose connection, but really what it was about was it was about when someone was poor or coming from far that um, there was a new standard that was put into place, whether it was from a commercial perspective or the judgment of what someone's sacrifice was, that said it's not good enough, you actually have to come under this system, which I would say is oppressive, <laughs> and you have to perform um, this one way. And yeah, that made Jesus a little bit upset. Um, but the other thing that I think is interesting is that they describe how the Kidron Valley, you know, by the Mount of Olives was beside the temple and that that's where the selling would have started at some point. But that eventually it moved into the outer courts. And I, I don't have a photo of the temple, but if you did a Google search, you could see that there was actually um, seven courts that included the court of the Gentiles, the women, and then there was, it kind of went in, um, more and more and more, and the person that could access the actual center point was the high priest, right? And only in a certain context. Well, what's really interesting and what I think is just so beautiful about why Jesus was so mad is not just that the poor and those who were um, traveling were being oppressed into a way of worshiping, but the court that the selling would have happened in would have been the court of the Gentiles, Okay, It would have been where someone who was a non-Jew, if they chose to worship God, that was where they got to worship. And that was full with people selling, right? And I, what I love about the picture of like, why did that make him mad? Why did he say he would destroy it? Is that if you read the theology of Christ, it's about the poor, the orphan, the widow, the oppressed, the alien, the outsider, the Gentile, right? That's what it's all, it's about, it's about everyone. And the, the religious structure that was in place in the temple made it so that it, worship became an elite practice, that you had to jump through hoops to perform correctly or to perform at all. And they made it so that there wasn't room for the outsider to come in. So by conducting their business in the temple complex, these individuals disrupted the worship of the non-Jewish God-fearers, obstructing the very purpose for which the temple existed. And so when we see Jesus saying, um, I will destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Yes, he's talking about his physical body, right? His physical body is going to be raised again, but he's also talking about temple worship, right? Which is the church, that there was going to be a, um, a destruction that happened, but it was for the sake of rebuilding. And with the pinnacle point that we see this happening is that when he died on the cross, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn, right? It was about access for, for all people, it was about a temple that didn't have hoops, that wasn't um, oppressive, that didn't have structures that made it so that only if you fit a certain bill that you could um, enter. And so it sounds like a temple worth destroying, <laughs> right? And yet that wasn't the plan. The plan wasn't deconstruction for the sake of destruction. It was deconstruction for the sake of reconstruction. And, you know, and so again, this may be a very frustrating, like, you know, um, week three, because honestly, I think I have more dot, dot, dots or open-ended questions for like, what is reconstruction? Well, what is reconstruction? Reconstruction is unending. It's relearning. 
And it's staying in a place of humility where you are allowing the Holy Spirit to ask you the questions, right? Not that you or I would ever be in the position of a high priest, but we do, um, I mean, we've been commissioned to go into the world, and so we have a priestly commission over us to bring the gospel into the world. And if you're not allowing the Holy Spirit to be talking to you about how you are doing that, um, then that you've reconstructed, but you've maybe just created something for, for you or something you're comfortable with, right? Reconstruction is unending. So when Jesus says that he will rebuild the church and he, or his body, the church, and he will do that in three days, it, it was done when he said it is finished, and yet it is still being done, right? Because we're still waiting for his second coming, Right? So that when we are sanctified, that happens at the moment of salvation. We are set apart and we are made right, but we are being sanctified. It's an ongoing thing. So it's both happened and is happening. What a concept, <laughs> right? So you're like, so wait, if I deconstruct, I then reconstruct forever? And I would even take it a step further and say that if you're staying in a place of humility and teaching um, and allowing the counselor to be the one speaking to you, then you may actually be staying in a place of deconstruction and reconstruction ongoing that those two concepts are not necessarily binary and they're not necessarily chronological, right? You don't deconstruct, do it for three years and then reconstruct and that's it. Now you may have a crisis of faith that creates a real potent season of deconstruction, right? Where, um, and I, I'm going back to the university students, I think it's the season that most of us can understand the most, but. Even for um, my husband and I, we went through what I would think is a pretty crisis of faith about two years ago when we were in a very toxic, unhealthy um, church culture and it destabilized everything. Everything I thought, everything I believed, um, it destabilized all of it. Um, so that was a, a, a really potent season of deconstruction and yet two years later, as reconstruction has been happening, deconstruction is coexisting. Right? They're happening, um, and it's not even that I can give you a predictability of 10% to 90% or 20 to 80. Um, but what I would encourage you is that they are not binary, which means they are not polarized opposites that never enmeshed. And they're not chronological. They don't happen like this, okay? Just like we see that he was, he, it was finished and, he, and it was destroyed, the temple, it was rebuilt, but it's also being rebuilt still being rebuilt. We are sanctified, but still being sanctified. Um, what I love about um, the After Doubt book, when uh, A.J. Swoboda says, it's easier to be a coroner than a surgeon. You know, a coroner is looking at a dead body and you can just take it apart, right? You can just take, oh, there's the liver. Now, I, it's actually probably really difficult to be a coroner um, as well, but the concept is that if the body is dead and there's no consequence of playing around with it and moving this here and moving that there, you can really go and you can really explore. But the idea of a surgeon is that there is consequences if all you're doing is moving things and exploring, right? And reconstruction actually looks like surgery on a body that's alive, right? Not exploration on a body that is dead. Um, now the word picture I'm about to use is not perfect. If you went, if you really went for it, it's quite flawed. But it's to me the idea that if I, let's say I bought a house and as I'm living in it, I become aware that, oh, there was lead, um, uh, what is it called? I'm not a plumber. What are those things called? The tubes, plumbing. 
the things that water goes in. All of a sudden, I become aware there is uh, lead pipes. That's our pipes. Um, if I was in a destruction mentality, then I would say, oh my gosh, there's lead pipes. This whole thing must be destroyed. And I would just demo the house. And I just rebuild one where I would have no lead pipes. Well, again, that's, that's destruction and that's really costly. Is there the potential to build a new house? Yes, but without Airbnbs, you are without somewhere to find home, right? Whereas the more cost-effective and healthier long-term, um, at least financially, would be to replace the pipes, right? You're not destroying the whole house because of the pipes. Um, and yet there would be an awkwardness living in that space. There would be drywall. You may have to move out for a season, but it's not destruction. It, it's restoration, right? It's taking something, seeing the parts that are broken, giving it the attention that it deserves, but for the sake of that thing, that place being healthy and livable and whole again. Um, so what is reconstruction? Reconstruction is a state of being, I really think. I don't think it's just a season. I would encourage you to stay in that place of deconstructing and reconstructing. Um, and again, maybe not because of a crisis where it's potent, but staying in a place that says, Holy Spirit, I'm sure that I am egocentric and ethnocentric when it comes to my understanding of how I read the scripture. You know, um, something my husband says all the time that I think is a really great accountability is he says, when we read the Bible, a lot of us want to be the protagonist. Like we see ourselves as the main character. So when we read about David and Saul, we are like, oh, that means Saul, but I'm David. And every scripture that I'm reading applies to me as the hero. Um, and and that's not, that's being uh, egocentric. And the idea of ethnocentric is that um, another sociological idea that you believe that your culture is the one that is evolved and arrived and you judge every other culture or every other experience in the world against your <laughs> worldview as being um, supreme, right? Um, that is so dangerous for us when it comes to theology and when it comes to um, rebuilding or restructuring what, what is being deconstructed. And what I, would, what I would say as a challenge is to stay in the place of being teachable. So not just relearning, but learning, right? Learning and relearning, being held accountable by the Holy Spirit, by the community that you're in. You know, discipleship is sticky and awkward at times and tense and bizarre, but staying in a place where as you're maybe tempted to destroy that someone can say, but wait, why would you destroy the whole thing if there's something that is good there. Um, and not being ethnocentric or egocentric in how you read scripture and you develop theology or how you um, reconstruct and understanding that our temptation, just like we talked about last week, is to create a God in our image, right? Just from Adam and Eve to the Israelites and so on, um, not to put ourselves in a place where we can do that very easily but knowing that the temptation for us because of our sinful nature, that that's an easy place to go. And so it's been a great three weeks. I hope that there was something, um, a nugget there that can help you on your journey. If you want to reach out, I'm a stay-at-home mom. I work two nights a week, so feel free. We can chat. Um, but also I really trust you to Drew and Heather, who are awesome. 
and can walk with you through this journey. And so if it's okay, I'm just going to pray to end our three weeks, and hopefully we'll see you in person again soon. Lord, I just thank you so much for your church, for the church, and for the community that is Praxis that is committed to meeting together, whether in person or online, in this weird world that we live in now. And um, I just pray for every soul that is represented um, in this community. God, that as we are all wrestling through, what is a life that honors you? What what is it that you actually would have for us? And where have we built something that is ours or in our image that doesn't honor you or glorify you? God, that, that you would um, speak to us, that you would walk with us, that even in that lonely journey of deconstruction, whether it's a crisis of faith or simply questions that have gone unanswered, um, God, that we would feel you in our midst. Lord, just like with Thomas, how when he said what he needed, you actually gave it to him that if there are those that are bold enough to say, Lord, I need to hear this from you, I need to understand it, God, that you would, because you are love, Lord, that you would speak in ways that could be heard and understood. Um, and I just commit this church to you, this part of your body to you, and ask that you would bless them and keep them, that you would shine your countenance on them and you'd walk with them. And uh, we thank you for your presence, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.